Let's give our attention now to the Lord in prayer as we ask him to bless the preaching of his word. I'm grateful to have my friend and brother, Brent Ward, here with us this morning. Brent's a member at Heritage Baptist Church in Mansfield. He's the director of development for the International Reformed Baptist Seminary. Brent planted and pastored a church in Duncanville, Texas, for well over a decade and now serves as director of development there. It's the seminary and teaches and preaches regularly at Mansfield. Uh, so please give your attention uh, to the Word of God here as, as he opens to us uh, John's, the first chapter of John's Gospel. So let's pray and ask for the Spirit to give him all that he needs to proclaim to us and all that we need to hear. Father, we are so grateful for your kindness to us, the mercy that you've made yourself known uh, to men. Uh, we pray as our brother Brent opens the Word of God to us this morning that you will give us eager ears uh, to hear, to believe, to submit ourselves fully and completely to our triune God. Uh, I pray that you would bear fruit to our brother's labors, give him the strength and the power of your spirit uh, to proclaim accurately, clearly, and faithfully uh, the, the, the full revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ delivered to us through your word. We ask this in his name. Amen. Brother, will you please come? Good morning. You guys can sing. Those of us that live in the Dallas area are always reminded that it's not very hot in Dallas in comparison to where you live. <laughs> so thank you for that. I'd like to invite you to open your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 1 as we look at the prologue of John's Gospel. John 1, be looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. This is God's Word to us. Let's give our attention to it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. They came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to come before your presence together. And we would ask now that you would illuminate your perfect revelation to us. That you would renew our minds and warm our hearts. That we would be encouraged in our faith. Attend to your word by your spirit. Move upon us and have your way. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you spend any time in a kitchen, one of the chores that you will inevitably end up doing is the cutting up of an onion. Now, for many of us, this is not a particularly enjoyable task. Crying over a vegetable isn't very fun. But once you get past the tears, onions, well, they're kind of cool. The layers, the symmetry, the shades of color, they all speak of God's beautiful creation. Brothers and sisters, it is not just the heavens that declare the glory of God. Now, these passages that are before us this morning are like a proverbial onion. In the beginning was the word. Talk about a text with layers of meaning. In fact, the Apostle John will show himself to have quite the writing style for the, for the onion taste, so to speak. His imagery, his Illusions, they draw us into with layers of meaning. And if there is a flagship example of this, it would be this passage before us this morning in John's opening prologue. Now, our text this morning is pretty straightforward, and yet it is very weighty. And its purpose is to strengthen your belief that Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the Word, the life, and the light of God. And brothers and sisters, isn't that what we need this Lord's Day? The strengthening and the nourishing of our faith. Could, could a doctor prescribe a better medicine? Listen, we live in a world of darkness, a spiritual shadow the night of unbelief and wickedness is continually assaulting our faith. Just turn on the television. You know exactly what I'm talking about. That ancient serpent whispers in our ears that there's a better life outside of a relationship with our triune God. Satan would also have you believe that there is a better life than Christ shining. You see... Satan tempts you with the fruit of happiness that says 
that it is mightier than God's word, he still whispers this. Did God really say? Think about this with me. How often he attacks our faith. And he does so with comparisons. He'll say things like, which is more touching? The 6K high resolution IMAX movie that pulls on your heartstrings or some ordinary man standing in front of you preaching from an old book for an hour or so. Which is more fun? Doing what feels right, what feels good right now. Doing what you want. Or living by God's Word. Which holds a better hope for the future, putting man's confidence in man's innovation and technology, or trusting in a man that died on a Roman cross thousands of years ago. These are the things that tug on our faith. These are the whispers trying to get you to redirect your faith away from God. But beloved, brothers and sisters, the Lord has given you His Word to declare to you the fact That Jesus is the Christ. Listen to John's purpose statement with me. Found in John chapter 20. You can go there if you'd like or just follow along and listen. John 20 and verses 30 through 31. John says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It is Christ Jesus alone that imparts true knowledge, purity, and life. Christ who died, who rose again, who is alive forevermore. He is the life. He is your life. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you receive an everlasting life that can never be taken away from you. Jesus Christ, the object of your faith, is none other than the Son, the second of the Godhead, the very God of very God. He was with the Father in the beginning. He is fully God completely and totally. He made all things. Brothers and sisters, think about this with me. There was never a time when the Son of God was not the Word. He is from everlasting to everlasting. What could be a better anchor? What could be a better rock? A foundation for your faith? You see, everything in this world that is enticing you to trust in it is all passing away. It all gets obliterated. These things that we see. And yet, the one in whom we are to believe in, the very God of very God, He has no beginning. He has no end. Jesus Christ is the Word of God revealing the triune God to you. And accomplishing God's redemptive purpose for you and in you. Listen. 
that same unassailable power of the word that was exercised in creation. This same power is is what Christ executes to accomplish your redemption. You think God is mighty in creation. He is just as mighty in your redemption. So then, this morning, the Apostle John is going to take us out from the deeply wooded valley floor, and he's going to place us on the summit of a high mountain peak. And at this altitude, John is going to open up this clear panoramic view of God's redemptive plan found only in Christ. John does this for you as you walk in this dense and dark path of life so that your faith has an anchor in the eternal Son of God. Now as we turn to this portion of Scripture, it's good to be reminded that that John wrote this letter, listen to me, this might surprise you, he wrote this letter to the church. Yes, there is absolutely, make no mistake, an evangelistic flavor to John's gospel, but still, he penned this for us, the church, to strengthen your faith. John does this by answering the question, who Jesus is. For the saints during that time, they, during Jesus' life, they, they were aware of Pilate and, and how Jesus, um, how he had been had not been seen since his death, his resurrection and ascension. Jesus was a man who lived, who taught, and who died. But if you're really supposed to believe in him, you kind of need to know his full resume, right? I mean, why should you believe in Jesus over any other teacher? What makes him so special? Well, these were the doubts that the church had in John's day, and very little changed as we hear the skepticism in our own day and age, don't we? From inside and outside of the church, there are many voices telling you that that Jesus isn't the one to believe in. We hear speculations that Jesus didn't come to to die for your sin, but rather to, to be a good moral example so that we could be good people and help those that are less fortunate. So just like in John's time, We too need our faith strengthened. We need to be reminded who Jesus really is. Now, if you're going to get to know someone well, you need to know their full story. You need to know where they came from. And this is where the other Gospels begin. Matthew started uh, with Jesus' ancestry all the way from, from Abraham and David. Luke commenced with Jesus' birth and and Mark, he, be, he began his story, John the Baptist, at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So where does John start his story? He kicks off his gospel in the beginning. Those hallowed and well-known words of Genesis 1-1 is where John begins. In the beginning. Think about this with me. John starts at a point which you can't go back any further. For in the beginning, this is the moment when eternity gave birth to time, to history, to creation. This this is where the infinite and eternal triune God began to execute His eternal will for creation. When Genesis says, in the beginning, God, 
It is saying that God is above and outside of time and creation as the creator God. This is how far you get to see from this textual mountaintop that John has put us upon. You get to see eternity open the door for creation and redemptive history. But but John does something. John amends the text of Genesis 1. Instead of writing in the beginning, God, he writes in the beginning, the word. John places the word in eternity as belonging to the eternal realm. And John here is clearly using the word as a title. As a title for Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the word. So let me ask, what's the significance of this title? Well, in the Old Testament, the word of God was how he revealed himself. The word was the manifestation of God himself to us. How did you know God? How did he make himself known to the people? It was by his word. It was by God speaking to the people that they came to know him, to be in covenant with him. But more than this, it, it, was, the, it was by his word that God accomplished his will. By the word, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke creation into existence. Likewise, God redeemed his people by his word. His promises were the foundation of of, of the people's salvation. The people lived by God's word alone more than bread itself. So the word is the revealer of God. It's the accomplishment of God's will. So the word does this. And and, and here's what John will do. He's going to go on. He's going to say this. the, the, The word was in the beginning and the word was with God. The word was with God. Now, to be with someone is to be personally and oftentimes intimately related to them. Well, the the word was with God, listen to me, in eternity. In eternity, the word or son is personally distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit, but of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence yet the essence undivided. In short, John is affirming that the Word is God. The Word is God, fully divine. The Word is equal to the Father in power and in glory. All things that were created was done so through the Word. And without the Word, not one thing was created that has ever been made. The Father created through the Word and with the Word. Indeed, John makes a very clear distinction in words here. Um, All in the verbs. All things, he says, listen to this, were made. Everything came into being, but the Word, listen to this, but the Word was. The Word did not come to be. He merely was. There was not a time when the Word was not, but He was in the beginning. He existed in eternity, listen to me, in all eternity. 
Truly, the word then is unmade. He is uncreated because the word is the very God, a very God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in being as we all confess. Every last thing that came into being came through the word who was and always is. Indeed, not only were all things created through the word, but the word was life. The word was life. To to him belong life itself, says John. The word has life in himself. Just like the father, he is self-existent. That means that the, the, the word is not dependent on someone or something else for life. There's not some power or, or force or nor, nourishment that the word needs to stay alive. You and I, we're very dependent beings. You know, we need things like air, water, food, and a lot of coffee just to stay alive. Without these things, life run away from us. It leaves us behind. But not so with the Word. He has life in Himself as God. Being God, the Word has life in Himself. He is fully self-existent. And in fact, life belongs to the Word so much, it characterizes Him so fully and purely John can also refer to the word, listen to this, as the life. Jesus Christ so fully reveals God, so fully performs his will that John can call him the word. And likewise, life belongs to Jesus Christ so perfectly and totally that John can honor him with the title, the life. Isn't that how we use titles this day? Think about this with me. If someone was really good at something. In other words, they, they, they were the embodiment of some virtue. We can call them by that activity or by that attribute. Hey, he's the man. She's the teacher. Mom, well, she's the mom. Well, Christ is the Word, and He is the life. Life is in the Word, And all life, listen to me, all life finds its source in Him. Just as nothing was created without the Word, so nothing has life without the life. It says elsewhere, if you're taking notes, it's Acts 17.28. In God we move and live and have our being. Brothers and sisters, and the Word is God. This is precisely John's point when when he writes here in verse 4, the life is the light of men. Now you can see here, John again shifts the imagery. He has moved from the Word to the life, and now we have a third. He is now to the light. Just as he has revealed to us Christ as the Word and the life, He honors him with the title, The Light, in verse 5. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, another question. Why the light? Why the light? Well, the light is a symbol. It's imagery for knowledge, for life, for, for what is good. It is imagery for God. 
God dwells in light unapproachable. But more specifically, light is what imparts or bestows these good things. Light gives knowledge to the ignorant. Light bestows life on the blackness of of darkness and death. Light converts the shadow of wickedness in the dawn of righteousness. Light conquers the, the night of the evil with the day of God. So when John says that the the life is the light of men, he means that the word is what imparted life to all people. All people have life from the word who is God. So with this line, we get the impression that John has us facing east on that mountaintop summit. He, He has us focus on the sunrise of creation. But, but the next line makes us think twice about what point of the compass we are facing. Note the next line. The light shines in darkness. Now, now this is interesting. The wording does echo Genesis 1.15 when God made the sun and the moon to shine, giving their light upon the earth to give light in darkness. Yet something is In verse 3, where John is clearly talking about creation, he used the past tense, all things were made through him. But here, we are struck by the present tense, and I want you to think about this. Here it says, the light shines in the darkness. And So so no, we're no longer facing east on the summit. We're facing south to behold the light in the new day brightness. My my point is this, John's not thinking about day one or day four, he's thinking of a greater reality that they symbolize. You see, on day four, light was given so there could be light on earth. But here, here another light comes to grant truth and everlasting light and life. So the darkness is not Think about this with me. The darkness is not the formless void of Genesis, but rather it is the the chaotic evil of the world. For I want to remind you, in Genesis 1, there was no conflict. In just 1, God didn't wage war against some demonic gods to raise the earth from their blood. No, rather, listen to me, God calmly... And he powerfully speaks heaven and earth into existence with the word out of nothing. And I want to remind you, and it was all very good. But here, here there's a conflict. The darkness, says John, has not overcome it. What does this mean? That the darkness then is fighting against the light. The light shining here then is the piercing of the darkness. It's the the slicing through its realm and its power. It's It's the shining of the light is a sharp blade across the heart of darkness. So the darkness fights back and it gathers its force and it charges the light. Thus you can see then John's primary concern in these opening verses is not to give us a commentary on Genesis 1 so much. His interest lies not so much in creation, but in the goal of creation, which is new creation, new covenant promises. John focuses 
on the new and everlasting life, which is only true life. You see, the tune to John's poetic prologue is given here to draw you into this glorious grace of Jesus Christ and what has been lavished upon you. This is evident from the next stanza in John's hymnic opening. For he says next, look in verse 6, There was a man sent from John whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So here we have a man, John the Baptist. And as we just read, John was given a mission. He was given a purpose. He had a commission from God. God sent John to do a job. And what was it? It was to bear witness. He was to give testimony concerning the truth about the light. John was not the light, but his purpose was to bear testimony about the light. You may recall his words. He says, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. I baptize with water, but one is coming that will baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. He announced that that the one after him is greater than him. He's not even worthy to untie a single strap from his sandal. So in short, John's purpose is to testify to the fact that Jesus Christ is the light shining in the darkness. And he did so. He gave firm and binding testimony that Jesus is the light shining. And, and if Jesus is the light, and if he's the life, and he is the life, and he's the light of all people. And if Jesus is the life, He is the Word. Who is with God? Who is God from the very beginning? And what's John's purpose? Note the end of verse 7. That all might believe through Him. That all might believe through Him. John testifies so that you might believe in the Christ His purpose is to assist your faith, bolstering your belief in the one true and living God manifested in the Son. Well, now after mentioning John the Baptist's testimony to the light, John returns to this image of Christ as the light. In fact, here, look at verse 9. He calls him the true light. Jesus is the true light who gives light to all people. Who shines on everyone. Now, I want to be clear about something, okay? This shining on everyone. John, again, is not primarily interested in creation, but in redemption. The shining of the true light is the glowing of the gospel. The the revelation of Jesus Christ as Savior of all. Now, the accent that is being stressed here by the words true and everyone. Brothers and sisters, this is not universal salvation. Okay, put your stones away. Okay, rather this this is that light is the only Savior. There is no other light beside Christ. Think of it this way. We we can do this. Um, Think of a small town lawyer. Okay, you could call him the town lawyer, even though not everyone in the town may be his client. He's a town lawyer because he's the only one in town. Well, so also Jesus is the true light shining on all people because he is the only beacon 
of salvation. He is the only one that can save. He is the only true light. And this true light actually came into our world. Yes, the light. Think about this. It's mind-blowing. The true light, who is the creator word, entered our world. The creator opened the door and he walked into the created realm. The light was in the world that he made. Brothers and sisters, this is astounding. Note the end of verse 10. Yet the world, the world did not know him. The world did not recognize the very one who formed it into existence. This is like Siri on your iPhone. And you guys, you know, I know that there's a, 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 you know, there's Google and Siri. Just bear with me, okay, on the Apple stuff. But you set up that Siri thing. And then you go and you're driving. You say, hey, Siri, and nothing. You know exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't recognize your voice. It doesn't respond at all. Another example Think of a clay pot saying to the thing that made it, to the potter, who in the world are you? I don't recognize you. The employee saying to the owner or the president of the company, you don't work here. Get out of here before I call the cops. Yes, when the world rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the nature of their rejection. They are denying the very one who brought them into existence, without whom they have no existence. Now, if you think that's shocking, just wait. For the text says that he came to his own. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Brothers and sisters, this refers to Israel. Jesus came to his own land, his own people, and like the world, His fellow countrymen did not receive him. His own family did not accept him. Now, it's one thing for your employee not to recognize you, but it's an entirely whole other issue if your family says, hey, we do not know who you are. Jesus and the Jews, they shared the same family photos. The Old Testament was filled with pictures of the light. On every page of the Old Testament was the light, and yet the light shows up on the doorstep of his own family, and what do they say? You're not part of us. We have no idea who you are. The blindness, the stubbornness of the world and the Israelites are absolutely baffling, and yet not everyone rejected the true light that came into the world. Some actually did receive him. Some accepted the true light. But the question we have to ask is, how? How did they receive the light? If the true light is walking around your neighborhood offering you the best life, you want to know how to find him, right? Well, John tells you. Those who receive the light are those who believed in his name. It is by faith. It is by faith that you receive the true light and light of the world That is by faith alone. By trusting in the name of Jesus, this is the way you receive the true light. No works required. No deeds are given. No to-do list is taped on the refrigerator door. Rather, it is by believing in his name that one receives the very light of the world. And look at one of the great benefits of receiving this light. Look at verse 12 with me. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, listen to this, he gave the right to become children of God. He gives you the right to become children of God. Your, your life radically changes across the board. You go from being a stranger, from being an enemy of God, to be a beloved son or daughter. What could be more amazing, more precious than to be a child of the living God? So, how, how do we get into this family? Well, it's not by being born in the right family. It's not the faith of your mom or dad. We are Reformed Baptists here, right? John says here, it's not by blood. Nor is it by the choice of flesh or even the desire of a mom. No, you become a child of God, listen to me, by regeneration, by becoming a new creation. 1 Peter 2.9 says it this way, He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This shows you that, it, that this is a spiritual and supernatural work of God on your behalf. Becoming a child of God is not a physical birthing. Rather, it's God making you anew to bring you into His family. To make you heirs of his estate, to cover you with his protecting arms and then feeling, feeling that southern comes out, feeling with the Father's love. Okay, all this sounds great, but how does believing in the true light really do all of this? How can faith in the light impart all these marvelous blessings? Well, John lays out on how this is the case. And he does so with one of the most beautiful statements in all of Scripture. You know how it's a beautiful statement. The preacher at that moment tells you it's the best text. This is the one for today. David will have one next week. But for today, bear with me. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And the Word became flesh. How did the true light enter into the world? The Word became flesh. The Word who was from everlasting, who was not made, but was. The Word who is God, who created everything. And it is this Word who entered your world by taking upon Himself flesh. Now, our confession says something, and it summarizes this beautifully. Chapter 8, paragraph 2, says it this way. The Son of God the second person in the Holy Trinity being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Himself man's nature, listen to this, with all the essential properties and the common infirmities thereof, yet... Without sin. What was the door by which the Creator entered the world? It was the door of human flesh. Surely no words are more astonishing. To make you a child of God, the Word, the eternal Word, took upon Himself flesh. Not only did He take upon Himself flesh, He came 
and he dwelt among us. He came to his own people and he lived among them. Now there is more to this word dwelt than meets the eye. It would be best understood as it's a, it's a, it's a weighty word. He tabernacled among us. You see, the, this dwelling has a particular allusion to, to God dwelling in the tent of meeting, or you can think of the tabernacle in the midst of Israel during the Old Testament. Yes, God dwelt among His people in the Old Testament, and now Christ has come to tabernacle with us. Now what is interesting about this, this comparison or this contrast that John is setting up for us is in regards to Sinai. Now I want you to think about the events of Sinai quickly. God came down on Sinai. He entered the tabernacle. The people saw His, his glory in the Shekinah cloud. Think about that. And then now think about this comparison. John writes, note verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Here John is setting up for us a side-by-side comparison of Sinai, of God dwelling at Sinai, and then the Word coming. He's lining them up to show us, okay, what's better? Sinai was the archetypal revelation of God. Surely there was no manifestation of God greater than Sinai. Think about it. The thunder, the lightning, the fire, the earthquake, the power of God. Sinai is certainly a watershed moment in redemptive history. Yet John says, hold that thought. I want to show you something. He says it this way in verse 14. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory he beheld belong to the one and only Son Himself of the Father. He saw the Son of God the Father. What, what was the color of this glorious light? What were, the, what were the shades of His glory? Well, I'm sure you remember the colors of Sinai. It was a fiery light wrapped in a blanket, a, a thick blanket of darkness. There the glory of the Lord burned bright, yet it was sheathed in a black storm cloud. And were you allowed to approach the presence of God? No. Full truth emanated from Him. That is the, the perfect clarity of true reality was seen in the Word become flesh. Beaming out from the Word is the fullness of grace. That is God's full favor and love upon sinners deserving death. This is beheld in the Word. All of a sudden, Sinai doesn't seem as tall, does it? Now, John will continue with his comparison, but he's going to pivot by using the testimony of John the Baptist. John the Baptist weighed in on this comparison between Sinai and the Word become flesh. He testified about the Word. Note in the middle of verse 15, he says, he who comes after me ranks before me, listen to this, because he was before me. Because he was before me. Now, typically the older person is superior to the younger. So you think, John the Baptist superior to Jesus. John the Baptist was a few months older. His ministry began first, after all, right? 
John the Baptist was considered the last prophet of the Old Testament. In fact, some commentators refer to him as the greatest of the Sinai era. But John says the word became flesh and existed before him. He is the older one. He is superior. Jesus is the superior to John the Baptist. And and this means that the word become flesh is superior to Sinai. The word become flesh is a taller mountain than Sinai. His glory brighter. Note how he goes on to explain. Through the fullness of the word become flesh, we receive, what do we receive? Grace for the purpose of grace. Grace on behalf of grace flows toward us through how the word becoming flesh. I know this is weighty, bear with me. This is your inheritance. I want you to think about this as children of God through the word. And this is inheritance you could never get from Sinai as John proves from this comparison. The word coming in the flesh is set in contrast to God coming down on Sinai in verse 14. And now Moses is lined up with Jesus Christ in verse 17. It says this, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What what was given through Moses? What did the glory of Sinai make known? The burning glory of Sinai revealed the law. Now I want to make sure that everybody understands this. Is the law bad? Everybody help me real quick. Is the law bad? Are you hearing me say law bad? No. But there is a problem with the law. It does tell us something. It tells us this. God is holy but we can't get to God by way of the law. The only way you as a sinner will ever live with God, I want to remind you of this, is to be holy. So the purpose that the law serves is to do what? To show us that we are not. Make no mistake here, I want to make sure you guys get a hold of this. The law was a very bright light. The Israelites shrank back from it. But this... This light of the law, it, does, it doesn't impart righteousness. Could you see God with its light? Only if you obey, listen to me, absolutely perfectly could you see God. Note verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So here in verse 17 and 18, we have lined parallel panels. Bear with me. I'm almost done. This means... That the law given through Moses corresponds to the line, no one has ever seen God. Did anyone ever see God under the law? No, they didn't. Because glory was always hidden with the dark clouds. Darkness encircled God's glory so that no one could see God. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, even Moses on the summit of Sinai was put in the cleft of the rock And he could not see God's face. By the law, under the law through Moses, no one has ever seen God. Now, last question. What's the benefit of seeing God? What is the benefit of seeing God? To see God is to be in his most intimate presence. Which is the only place for true life. The fullness of of being alive is not 
the air in our lungs. It's not the pumping in our heart or chest or even enjoying the wonderful blessings and the good things of this earth. Rather, true life is being in the presence of God. So if the law could not make you see God, then the law could not impart to you true life. By the law, you can't enter God's presence to live with Him forever. By the law, you cannot experience the delight of the favor or the love of God for you. Instead, by the law, uh, excuse me, by the law, it's weighty. You ready? By the law, you can only feel His wrath, and you feel it like a branding iron on your soul. So then, by the law, you come to know only a part of God. His holiness and His wrath against your sin and my sin. And and this knowledge doesn't impart life. It's knowledge. It's good to know. But it doesn't impart life. It only imparts death. Yet how more full is the glory of the Word become flesh? This is that beautiful comparison. In contrast... To the law by which no one has ever seen God, John places who? Jesus Christ. Note the second half of verse 18 that corresponds to the second of verse 17. How does John refer to Jesus here? He calls him the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The only Son from the Father, verse 14, is now called the one and only God. Jesus Christ is fully God. The Word become flesh. And is God fully, listen to me, and uniquely. And where is Jesus? Oh, there was one more question. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to tell a story. Where is Jesus? He's at the Father's side. So the one and only Son, who, who is God at the Father's side, is able to make the Father known to you. It is the Son alone that reveals the Father to you. As John writes, He has made Him known. The Son has revealed the Father to you in a way that the law never could in that fire and in that thunder. The point is this. In Christ, you see God. No one has ever seen God but the Son You behold God, yes, even the Father. As Jesus says later on in this Gospel, if you have seen Me, you have seen the One who sent Me. Now this vision of God through the Word become flesh actually imparts true life to you. You see, the the life of Christ imparts true life with God. For what comes through Jesus Christ? Grace and truth comes through Christ. As John says, this is the full revelation of God. The beholding of the Father through the one and only Son. So grace also comes to you through faith in Christ. This is that undeserved love and delight of God. If you are here this morning and you have not made a profession of faith, you need to know that the law of God reveals His wrath against your sin. But His grace, His grace in Christ's work alone discloses the appeasing of His wrath and the pouring forth of His love. 
It is by grace through faith in Christ who is the word, who is the light, who is the life of God that will make you one of God's children. In the law, God says, don't you dare approach me unless you are perfect and holy. But in Christ, God says, you are my beloved and holy children. Come into my presence and stay with me forever. Yes, this is the grace and truth that comes through Jesus Christ. Friends, he took your flesh. He lived a perfect life of obedience for you. He died a sacrificial death. He conquered sin and death in raising from the dead. And He ascended to the Father. And so the call, the call every Lord's Day is to repent of your sin and place your trust in Him by faith. Grace takes you to places that the law or your dead works could never take you. It brings you to the family of God. Indeed, you can be a member of God's family because the Word became flesh. To my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a reassuring promise that our sins are forgiven because Christ's body was broken, His blood was shed. Christ did what we could never do. May your faith be strengthened in the means of, uh, uh, that He has given. The means of grace. We're reminded every Lord's Day as we look at the Lord's table. You see, we have the Word proclaimed, but then we have the visible Gospel and a reminder of the means of grace. And so may your faith be strengthened. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we how could we begin to understand our infinite triune God as we are but finite beings apart from your word? We're so grateful that you disclose yourself in your word and we would ask once again, that even in a weak vessel that declares your word, that, that you will use it by your spirit. Allow your word to have its intended effect upon us and allow us to respond in repentance and in faith, to be encouraged in our faith. To even respond in gospel obedience. May all these things be granted to us this Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus.